Good morning. Our Bible reading this morning comes from John chapter 17. Uh, you can find that on page 929 of your Black Pew Bibles. Or you can follow it along on the screen above me. And I'll be reading the whole chapter. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him, above, uh, you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, that only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I prayed for them. I'm not praying for the world, but I pray for those who have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, and they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them to your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you, make, you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, and they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them to be alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world would know that you sent me and have loved me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that, you love, that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, church. Nice to see you. My name is Paul. I met you. Uh, today we've got a, a shorter sermon and a longer time of thanksgiving. It's a short sermon on one of the most theologically dense and rich chapters of the Bible. Um, John Knox, the Scottish reformer, described John 17 as the holy of holies of Scripture itself. Uh, I've called this sermon the, the longings of our Lord Jesus, the longings of our Lord Jesus. Because in this chapter, we, we get a, a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. We, we get to see what he prays for and what he longs for. It's a unique chapter. We kind of eavesdrop into the, the private prayer life of Jesus. We get to listen in as he pours out his heart to God. I wonder how you'd feel if someone eavesdropped into your prayer life, if they listened into what kind of things that you pray for. Uh, for me personally, I'd find that quite confronting. I mean, sometimes my prayer life is thriving, but often it's mediocre. Often it's selfish. Often it's quite shallow. Uh, Robert Moe McShane said that what a person is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. And that's true. He says, forget all your good deeds, forget all your intellectual endeavours. How's your prayer life? Because your prayer life is like a window into your soul. And in this chapter, we get a window into the soul of the Son of God the kind of things that he longs for. We shift from Jesus talking to people about God, and in this chapter he's talking to God about people. But before we dive into the, the prayer itself, let me just make a few quick observations. Number one, uh, why does Jesus pray? You ever ask that? If Jesus is the Son of God, if he's fully God, co-equal with the Father, why bother to pray? And the answer is because of his humanity. Now, for 33 years on earth, he talked to his heavenly father. He's fully God, but he's fully human. As a man, he had that longing, that desire, that necessity to pray. He needed to pray. He wanted to pray. Part of what it is to be human is that we are, have this privilege of praying. Now, how did he pray? Verse 1, after, this, Jesus said to the, after Jesus said this, he, he looked towards heaven. Uh, literally, he, he lifted his eyes towards heaven. He lifted his eyes to the, the throne room of heaven. There are lots of postures in the Bible for prayer. You can pray kneeling, lying flat on your face, bowing before the Lord, dancing before the Lord. But here, Jesus lifts his eyes. And it's this picture of dependency, of expectation, of submission. He lifted his eyes, he lifted his voice to pray. He obviously prayed out loud because the disciples heard it and wrote it down. I don't know whether you pray out loud, but I think it's very good for your prayer life just to keep you on track to pray out loud. So why did he pray? Because he's human. How did he pray with his eyes to heaven? What did he pray for? He is in the last hours of his life. What would you pray for in the last hours of your life? A pain-free death, a quick death, or one chance to say goodbye? 
Jesus doesn't pray for that. He prays for himself, yes, but then he prays for his disciples. And then he goes on in verse 20 to pray for all those who will become believers after them. He prays for you. He prays for me. How do you feel about that? In the hours before he died, the Lord Jesus Christ was praying for you. Actually, the rest of scriptures tell us he's, he's still praying for you right now. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you right now. And then lastly, before we look into the prayer, this is a promise, not just a prayer. This isn't just a prayer, it's a promise from God. Now, four times in John's Gospel, Jesus said, ask anything in my name and it will be done for you. Well, this is Jesus himself praying, so of course it's going to be done. Or, or James 5, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective and there's no man more righteous than Jesus himself. So we're not supposed to read this just as a prayer, thinking, oh, it may or may not happen. This is a promise. What Jesus prayed for did happen and will happen. Let's look at three longings. Here's the first one. Glorification. Glorification. Jesus prayed, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. It's bookended in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus is praying, Father, glorify me. Now, that's not being egocentric. Jesus is not praying, "Uh, Father, puff me up. That's not what the word glorify means. The word glorify, it literally means to clothe with splendor. The word glorify means to to unveil, to reveal something which is not yet completely obvious. The the public recognition of what is a reality is a bit like a a graduation ceremony. If you've ever got a degree, you, you, you get your degree, but later on you have your graduation ceremony and you get decked up in some sort of robe or something. Now what's the point of that? because you've already got your degree. The point is, is that is that moment of public recognition. That's what the word glorify means, that moment of public recognition. Look what Jesus says down in verse four. He says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. He's saying, Father, my whole life, I've lived to please you, to reveal you, to make you known, to to glorify you. I've done what you asked me to do, Father. He says, Father, I left the luxury of heaven. I, I, I became nothing. I humbled myself. I took on the very nature of a servant, Philippians chapter two. Jesus is saying, my entire life on earth glorified you, my heavenly Father. Every sermon he preached, every sick person he healed, every confrontation of wrongdoing, every loving touch was all revealing, was glorifying the Father. But there's more. Verse one, the Father, the hour has come. The hour has come, he says. What's the hour he's talking about? The hour of his death has come. This hour determined by God is now arrived when the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless Son of God, will be hung up on a cross for the sins of the whole world. 
And Jesus is praying, at this hour, as I head to the cross, would you glorify your son and would you glorify yourself? Would this be a moment where you reveal, where you unveil, where you expose how glorious you really are? And I hope you know that, that the cross of Christ was the supreme moment of glory in human history. It's only at the cross that God's glory of his wisdom and power is revealed, that the cross, which is, which is foolishness to the world, but it's the power and the wisdom of God for those who believe. It's at the cross that we see the glory of God's holiness and his justice like never before. That God is holy, so he must punish sin. He's just. A penalty must be paid. And you see that at the cross. So at the cross, you see the, the sovereignty of God as all these prophecies are fulfilled. It's at the cross that you see the, the kindness and the love of God like no other time in history that you get to get eternal life that is completely undeserved. What is eternal life, verse 3? This is eternal life. That they know you, that word know, it's not intellectual, it's relational knowledge, that you have a deep, intimate, personal relationship with you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have seen. That is the heartbeat of God. He wants people to come to eternal life. And at this moment of history, Jesus prayed that the world would see the, the majesty, the mercy, the grace, the love, the wisdom, the holiness, the justice of God. Now, now church, we don't need to pray this because Jesus was glorified at Calvary. And the Father was glorified at Calvary. There's no other event in history like the cross. We don't pray this prayer anymore. It's been answered. But we long other people to see the glory of Jesus, don't we? We long for people to see how glorious our Father is and how glorious Jesus is. And Christmas, two weeks' time, is the easiest event in history. <laughs> to invite people to come and see the glory of Christ. So Jesus prays for his glory. And then he turns to pray for his disciples and he prays for their protection. That's the content of the prayer. Verse 11, he prays, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. That the word protect, it means to, to guard, to keep to shelter, to hold on to. He's saying, Father, would you hold on to your children? Father, would you protect them? Would you guard them? Would you keep them? I love the story of the, the husband who's going away on a business trip overseas. And as he leaves, he turns to his wife and says, darling, I'll pray for God to protect you whilst I'm away. And she turns to him and says, sorry? Who do you think protects me when you're here then? It's kind of arrogant, isn't it, to think that we as human beings can protect anybody? And yet we do. We, we think that we are self-sufficient, that we don't need anyone to protect us. We do, because we live in the world, a world that rejects God and a world that denies God. And Jesus, in verses six to nine, he explains to the disciples that they are chosen by God and they belong to God and they're loved by Jesus. And then he prays for them, verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, 
but they are still in the world. That is you, that is I, we're still in the world. So Holy Father, protect them. He says the same thing again down in verse 14 and 15. They are in the world, but they're not of the world. Ever heard that phrase before? We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We've been left here on earth in a world that denies God, that rejects Jesus. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. And so we need God to protect us. That's his job as a heavenly father. Now, as an earthly father to four boys, I have a privilege of protecting my boys. Now, when they're young, you protect them by keeping them close and holding on to them. And you're walking by a busy road or by a flowing river, you hold them tightly, don't you? And as they get older, you protect them by teaching them what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. And sometimes you protect them by, by letting them go a bit to make their mistakes. Now, you have a father in heaven who promises to protect you, to guard you, to keep you. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. So we were left in the world. God doesn't protect us by airlifting us out of this world. He doesn't want us to withdraw into little Christian communes to live a monastic lifestyle. He, he doesn't say, put your own walls of protection around yourself. You know, lots of Christians are good at that, aren't they? they join the Amish. Don't go to any ungodly places. Only send your kids to Christian schools to protect them from the pollution of this world. Some disciples are good at withdrawing from the world, thinking they're protecting themselves. God says, I'm going to leave you in the world, but you're not to be of the world. And I think that's our bigger problem here at the Bridge Church. It's not that we withdraw from the world. I think our biggest danger is that we are too much like the world. We love the world. We're so immersed in our world and our culture and we just don't realise the danger that we are in. The world is shouting at us 24-7, trying to shape our thinking and our values and the way that we speak and the way that we act. And so we need God to protect us from that, protect us from, from worldliness, Verse 14, I've given them your word. I've given them your word. The disciples had the word of God and the world hated them. Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. It's one of the ways that God protects us. It's through this. It's through the scriptures. As you sit with your, your Bible open, this spirit-filled, truthful Bible, God will teach you what is right and what is wrong. He will show you what it means to be his child. And we live in a world that mocks this and laughs at this and denies this. But if you want to be protected as you live in the world but not being of the world, you've got to devour the scriptures. You come to the scriptures saying, sanctify me, teach me, show me what is right, show me what is wrong. He protects them through the scriptures. He protects them from wandering. I love verse 12. While I was with them, Jesus says, I protected them and I kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None has been lost except for Judas, the one doomed to destruction. It's that promise that 
if you're a child of God, if you're believing in Jesus, God will keep you. God will hold on to you and keep you to that very last day. He who began the good work will be to completion. Nothing can cause you to stumble or wander or falter or fall because God's got hold of you. That's an encouragement, isn't it? Well, the devil will try. The devil will whisper. He'll whisper, are you really saved? Is this really stupid to believe in Jesus? That's why he prays in verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one, from the devil. Church, are you aware? Are you aware of the battle that you are in every single moment of every single day? When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Paul in Ephesians 4 says your battle is not against flesh and blood but against the spiritual realm. Are you aware of that? I I fear that we are naive. We are so naive to the the spiritual battle that we are facing and I think that we're naive to all the many and manifold ways that God protects you every moment of every day. Have you heard a missionary called John Patton? He was a missionary to the New Hebrides. Uh, One night, the local tribes, hostile tribes, came with their spears and they threatened to kill and burn down the mission station and to kill John Patton and and his family. And John and his wife, they spent the whole night in terror but praying on their knees for God's protection. And when they woke the next day, those hostile armies had left. They disappeared. A year later, 12 months later, the chief of the tribe came to Christ. He became a Christian. And John asked them, what happened that night? Why didn't you kill us? And here's what he said. The chief said, well, who were all those men with with you there? Who were all those men with you there? And John said, there were no men with us. And the chief said, but we saw an army of men. We were afraid to attack because we saw hundreds of big men in shining garments with their, their swords drawn circling that mission station that night. That is the spiritual realm. That's the army of angels that are watching over you. God protects you by his angels. He protects you with his armour that you get to put on every day. The, the armour of God, the, the breastplate and the, the boots and the helmet of salvation. He protects you by his word and by prayer. He protects you by his people, the church. And he protects you by the Lord Jesus Christ who's interceding for you right now. And I think only when you get to glory will you realise how many ways God protected you. Minute by minute, hour by hour, every day. So Jesus prays for glory, he prays for protection, and then lastly he prays for unity. This is the prayer for you and I. Verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone, I pray for those who will believe in me, that's you and I. And here's the prayer, verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you may they also be in us so the world may believe that you sent me. Extraordinary prayer. He's praying that we might have the, the, the same unity, 
that the Father has with the Son and has with the Spirit. It's that circle of love, that circle of unity that the, the Father, Son, and Spirit enjoy with each other. He's praying that we as believers might experience and enjoy that same kind of unity, that oneness. It's a bit like a, a bicycle wheel. In a, in a bicycle wheel, you've got the hub. And at the hub of the wheel, that's like the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect unity. And all believers are like the spokes on that wheel. We're all connected to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, aren't we? And we're connected to each other. But you've got a choice. You can choose to stay at the rim of the wheel, distanced from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and disconnected from every other spoke. Or you can choose to get close to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and be more connected to other believers. That's what Jesus prays for, this unity. Not, not uniformity, so we all dress and look the same. That's called a cult. Not agreeing on every single bit of doctrine. It's okay to disagree with bits of scripture where it's not a salvation issue. Lots of Christians down the ages have disagreed on that. You can stick Calvin, Wesley, Whitfield, Spurgeon, Billy Graham, John Stott in the same room, and they would disagree on stuff, but they're united in Christ. They're united in the blood of Jesus. That is the unity that we're called to enjoy. It's a unity that we don't earn. It's a, it's a unity that's given to us. You know, Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. There is one body. There is one Spirit. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So we are united the moment you believe. So we're family. Just sadly, the church is often known for its disunity rather than its unity. We're very good at fighting, aren't we? We are so good at dividing. What destroys unity? Well, read the rest of the New Testament. Every New Testament letter is written about division. Theological disagreements, members fighting, gossiping, slandering, grumbling, leaders abusing power, personal relationship breakdown, and it destroys our unity. And church, listen carefully. I think that we don't just separate from the world. We are very good at separating from other churches. Why do we do that? Why are we so good at thinking that we have got the one true truth and this is the only way you can do church? Why is unity important? Look at verse 23. It says, I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity and then the world will know that you sent me. Spot that link? Our unity makes the gospel of Jesus Christ very attractive to the watching world. When people see the church united, people from different backgrounds, different race, different age, different stage, with nothing in common apart from Jesus Christ, then the gospel is very attractive. And of course the opposite is also true. When you see Christians fighting and hating and backstabbing, the world says, well, why bother with Jesus? It matters because of evangelism. It matters, verse 24, because of eternity. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am 
and to see my glory, the glory you have given me before you loved me. I want to see people face to face in heaven, he's saying. And if evangelism doesn't persuade you to keep the unity, then maybe eternity might just. Because heaven's about unity, isn't it? You're going to spend the rest of eternity worshipping your God with people from every possible denomination, from every possible culture. You're going to spend eternity with Pentecostals and Presbyterians and Baptists and Anglicans and Catholics and non-denominations, and they're all going to be there because they love Jesus. And they might think slightly differently about a few things, but if they believe in the gospel of grace and Christ alone and faith alone and the scripture alone, then they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you're going to spend all eternity with them, let's work harder now at being united here on earth, yep? And then just perhaps the watching world might say, wow, this person of Jesus Christ, he really is worth investigating. It's a great prayer, isn't it? Prayer of his glory, for our protection, and for this unity.